Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jesse Zarley, a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Alberto Arambor about his new book, Soberanías Fronterizas, Estados y Capital en la Colonización de Patagonia, Argentina y Chile, 1840 hasta 1920s, which was published in 2019 by the Universidad Austral de Chile Press. Alberto is an associate professor in the Instituto de Historia y Ciencias Sociales at the Universidad Austral de Chile in Valdivia, where he teaches courses on Latin American and Chilean history. He is a researcher with the Ideal Research Center and he currently oversees a four-year Fondesit research project entitled Estado y Mercado en las Fronteras de la Civilización, Historias Transnacionales del Colonialismo Postcolonial en América del Sur. Dr. Arambor is the author of numerous articles as well as the co-editor with Mario Asada of the diary of 19th century Scottish immigrant William Blaine entitled Un viaje a las colonias, memorias y diario de un ovejero escocés en Malvinas, Patagonia y Tierra del Fuego, published by the Centro de Investigaciones Diego Barasarana. Alberto, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jesse. Uh, nice to meet you for the long distance. <laughs> you, you as well. I wonder if you could uh, begin by telling us a little about yourself, where you got your PhD, and what brought you to study Patagonia. Well, thanks. I, I did study my, my PhD at Stony Brook, State University of New York. Uh, at Stony Brook by then, they afterwards uh, shortened the, the title. Um, and I had the pleasure to work there with... Uh, well, first of all, with Tom Klubok, who's now at Virginia, uh, with Brooke Larson, uh, and, and many people. So um, it was actually a, a great opportunity for me coming from Chile uh, to undertake a transnational approach to state formation in southern Patagonia, uh, which was something that I had explored in my earlier uh thesis as an undergraduate. Uh, when I work on political violence against the labor movement in the 1910s and early 1920s. So when I was an undergraduate at Pontificia Universidad Católica in Santiago, uh, I found that uh, most of the documentation I was looking for um, ended at the border, but it was a Chilean, you know, uh, authorities. And the documentation ended at the border, but I could see very clearly that most of the people who was portrayed in the documentation, mainly laborers, were very mobile across this border. Uh, and also for the owners of the big, very big um, ship farming uh, holdings. Um, that they were moving the the ship uh, across this border. So the border didn't exist, but in the documentation. So one of my questions was uh, how to figure out the moment at which these 
international delimitation uh, was placed on the land and not only in the diplomatic or uh, official documentation. You know? That's really similar to my own research, kind of thinking about how the border. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so turning to the book, um, in your introduction, you you go over how to Europeans and outsiders, Patagonia has been a place of, of fantasy or mystery or even considered a, a damned place, Patagonia Maldita you, you use. Um, until relatively recently, it was, it, you know, you, you say that it was also represented as a blank space on a map. So I was wondering if um, you could situate us and describe a little bit the actual geography and inhabitants of Patagonia uh, before Europeans? Well, Patagonia is uh, southern Patagonia in this case. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. what's currently the provinces of Santa Cruz and Tierra del Fuego on the Argentinian side, if there's something like a side, well, today there's something like a side. Uh, and Magallanes uh, in Chile, the, the southernmost tip of the, of the continent. Uh, so there were four, five, six different peoples um, or indigenous nations uh, inhabiting the land, um, some of whom had a, a long-lasting uh, tradition of commerce, like the Tewelches or Onikenk on the on the continental part of the south, terrestrial and continental. Um, the Tewelches or Onikenk um, had a, I mean. Uh, centuries-long tradition of isolation, but also of contact. And, and the main proof is that they were a, a mounted people, you know. Um, they had horses, uh, but they kind of retreated to the extreme south uh, to keep their uh, autonomy, you know. But they had this very open society, uh, non-hierarchical, uh, which allowed them to incorporate people uh, who came from different backgrounds. You know, when uh, I mean a uh, Uruguayan uh, gaucho was cacique in the 1830s in the area of the Strait of Magellan. Uh, just to put an example. Thereafter, you have the Selgnam, non-mounted. Uh, hunter-gatherers in Tierra del Fuego, on the territory of the island, and canoe peoples, two or three different canoe peoples throughout the uh, very uh, massive archipelago uh, of uh, Western Patagonia. So you have people, you had peoples that were in, in permanent contact between them, uh, the most isolated, I would say, were the Selklam on Tierra del Fuego. Um, but uh, a very, I mean, intermixing of, uh, uh, of cultures there uh, that appear in the literature and the ethnography sometimes confused uh, and in the most recent literature I mean, since Darwin in the 1830s, late 1830s, yeah, they appear like quite different one of 
uh, and another, you know, but they actually had very good relations, some of them, throughout the time. Uh, and that was the moment when, when Darwin passed through uh, the area uh, and the Admiralty uh, started to, to do hydrographic uh, prospections. Uh, that this area uh, became incorporated into, practically incorporated into the commercial travels uh, coming from Europe, mainly from Great Britain. So th- what I tried to present in the, in the first chapter is that the fantasy, the long-lasting fantasy about Patagonia came out of the, uh, started with the passing of uh, Hernando de Magallanes, uh, or Magellan, in 1520, but for 300 years, the area was absolutely out of any commercial circuit, so the peoples there remained fully independent. Um, And that shifted when the steamships uh, began to cross across the uh, Strait of Magellan, in the 1840s, following the travels of Darwin and Fitzroy and that. So it was also the moment when, through uh, following the, the roads of the steamships, uh, the sailing boats uh, went southward through, the, uh, through Cape Horn. So it was the opportunity that Chile took to, uh, to try to consolidate a position uh, to claim sovereignty, territorial sovereignty over the area, and and that was aiming to to help the steamers to cross the strait. You know, that was unuseful up to then. That's yeah, that's that's great and super helpful, and I think it's a theme that you develop throughout um, the book. So I guess another question turning to that first chapter that you mentioned, you mentioned Darwin, and then uh, you have that great quote from the the planetary scientist who compares Patagonia to a Martian landscape. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that process by which in the kind of in the 19th century, um, you know, foreign capital uh, and kind of state makers and military minds in Chile and Argentina begin to think of Patagonia less as this kind of uh, imposing place and more as a place of progress, uh, a place where where money can be made and that gets integrated into those commercial circuits you described. Yeah. Well, there are a number of circumstances uh, of casualties. No, no, not casualties. Casualidades, how do you say? Um, I mean... Occurrences. Things... Happen, you know, uh, yeah. and following the 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 opening of this route, um, um, a U.S. entrepreneur William Wilbright, uh, he began a series of contact with the British uh, consulates throughout the American Pacific uh, for the formation of a company uh, able to provide communication to the British entrepreneurs in Valparaíso, Callao, Panama, the, I mean, the, the big ports of the American Pacific. 
this is in the 1830s. Um, so actually, they met with Darwin and Fitzroy, probably in in, in Valparaíso, and which was an area with very low international commerce. You know, this is in the 1830s, 1840s, and they got. Uh, the Chilean, the Bolivian, the Peruvian, the Equatorian, and also the Colombian government to grant them a series of benefits uh, and subsidies uh, to create this company. They also got, William Wilbright also got these subsidies in London uh, by the Crown. So they basically built a company out of nothing without any investment. And they, keeping these privileges, they built, which will become the biggest uh, shipping company in the world, the Pacific Steam Navigation Company. And so the Pacific Steam Navigation Company provided this service of communication between London and the South American Pacific ports. And that was the moment when Chile began to figure out that they could actually exert territorial sovereignty on the area. But the, the foundation of Fuerte Bulnes in 1843 and soon after of Punta Arenas or Sandy Point in 1848 um, was very disgraceful. Uh, again, for 30, 40 years, the town only oh, was, uh, uh, was a permanent uh, source of trouble uh, a big expenditure without any uh, commercial production. They basically survived from the rations that were coming from northern Chile. And the Pacific Steam Navigation ships weren't recalling at the small port they had there. Uh, and the people basically, uh, soldiers, um, jailers uh, and people who was deported there uh, from northern Chile, uh, they basically survived because they were able to establish some commerce with the Aonikenko or Tehuelche peoples on the territory. So the territory lived out of the exportation to Chile, basically, uh, of feathers, uh, uh, guanaco, caps, and, uh, and it was after the Malvinas, called as the Falkland Islands by the British, uh, that uh, Malvinas was so full of shit uh, that at a certain moment in the, eight, in, in the late 1860s, uh, they began to move ship to the continent. You know? And that was the moment in the 18, late 1860s, uh, 1870s mainly, that the Chilean governor, a very precarious authority in Puntarenas, and the Argentinian uh, governor on the this very small port of 20, 30 persons living there at the expense of the government, began to bring uh, capitals of British uh, entrepreneurs from Malvinas and to bring the animals too. And so the ship began to expand through the steppes, um, a través de las estepas. Uh, and following the ship, the state began to build itself. 
So basically, the, the, the state had no idea, neither the Chilean nor the Argentinian, of what was through these wide distances uh, of Pampa, of Southern Pampa. And so they granted the land for free, or almost for free, to British entrepreneurs uh, who brought the ship from Malvinas. And as they expanded, um, the state authorities uh, began to to assert their own uh, power through the transference of official uh, positions to these British entrepreneurs, or mostly British entrepreneurs. And that's what I called, and that's the title of the book, like Borderland Sovereignties, Soberanias Fronterizas. Um, that state and capital and indigenous peoples, and thereafter the laborers coming from everywhere, but mostly from Chiloé, uh, uh, Chilean archipelago. Um, a good number of days of navigation of Patagonia Um, that these different sovereignties began to build. And mainly state and capital uh, interacted and built it uh, and were building themselves one another, you know. And at the same time, uh, the process of the expansion of the ship uh, and thereafter of the states uh, is what I called the ship sovereignty, you know, territorial sovereignty for capital for foreign capitals and for the, both the states was built after the ship expanded and multiplied through these infinite steps something that's more or less the the process of the of the occupation you know i thought that was really an interesting point that you brought up that um that the state remains kind of outside of the process of knowing the physicality and the kind of economic worth of this region. And they find themselves playing catch up to British capital and the kind of mm. sheepocracy that you referred to. Sheepocracy. Yeah, that's a good. <laughs> uh, and so I guess I'm curious, maybe in, in chapter two, you talk about how the state kind of plays catch up and you say it's a three pronged process. Um, by which it's turned into national territory. And you say that it's penal, racial, administrative. So I was wondering if um, you could maybe talk a little bit about how, how the state plays catch up. Well, uh, the state, uh, the, the imagination of the state, I mean, this very distant uh, states uh, who have no cartography of the place uh, or relied on the British cartography, Cartography, which was also very, very basic, uh, and and mostly for the coastal areas, but for the interior, they had no idea what what was there. Uh, I mean, um, even in the early twentieth century, so there were no roads, there were uh, no international delimitation at all, um, and that. So in Santiago and Buenos Aires, states began to compete each. Uh, against each other, Argentina against Chile, Chile against Argentina, you know, in both countries it's very uh, significant or very important still, uh, this idea that in Chile that Argentina Argentina stole Patagonia to Chile and in Chile and in Argentina that Chile was stolen a land that had uh, belonged 
for centuries, you know, to these countries that didn't exist centuries before, but still in the national, in, in the building of a national idea, um, Santiago and Buenos Aires compete, competed one against the other. Uh, so they envisioned these magnificent plans of Patagonia as a land of redemption for the criminals of the metropolitan areas that didn't work. Quite the contrary, it produced a number of uh, destructions in of the whole city in Punta Arenas a couple of times. Uh, there was also this plan for a racial uh, uh, for the importation of uh, European laborers, there were many discussions if it will who will be best fitted to arrive there if Germans, Spaniards, Italians, uh, or Norwegians, etc., etc. But it didn't work either, you know. Uh, mainly, this area, this area remained as a very distant an attractive area. And when it became attractive, uh, it was full of big land holdings. Land holdings? Land holdings? Uh, I mean, these big latifundios uh, comprising millions of hectares. So the attraction was basically for poor laborers from Croatia or Yugoslavia uh, from Chiloé, from some areas of central Chile or Argentina, uh, but without any hope of getting land, despite the despite the extension of this of this southern Patagonia, um, it was quite difficult to get any land because it was very far concentrated by a few brokers uh, working on the name in the name of British capital. Um, so basically, what I tried to show there is that neither the penal colonization, neither this project of uh, building cities, towns, ports, uh, not even this other idea of producing a repopulation through racial uh, profiling of immigrants, uh, it didn't work. I mean. It was the complete laissez-faire of the oligarchic states what allowed for this, what some historians uh, very kindly called liberal policies you know, uh, of land uh, assignation that the, the, that the area was incorporated to the European markets and not to the national realm. But through these authorities uh, that began to exert some power and some control only after the European capitals uh, produced the devastation of the indigenous peoples and native flora and fauna uh, by the introduction, through the introduction of uh, ship, the only product. I was wondering maybe um, to kind of the way you explain the coming together or the kind of overlapping or contradictory sovereignties of capital and 
and the states of Chile and Argentina. You talk a lot about the importance of corruption in building these relations. Um, so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you understand corruption and maybe talk about, um, also explain the process of concesión, uh, <coughs> the, the kind of naming of land as state land and then granting it. Uh, you In the 1890s, you had a case of the concesión grumbín, I believe it is. Uh, uh-huh. Maybe you could talk about one of those corruption and how this land ended up in the hands of these latifundistas. It's it's amazing that uh, there's a lot of historiography on on Patagonia. Uh, there are a lot of of travelers. I'm still discovering in these days some new documents about that. Um, but at a certain moment, uh, I uh, I learned of the existence of the memories of a couple of entrepreneurs there. One never published, another one, a very rare edition, a very small edition of the early 1980s. And they are quite, um, I mean, I don't know the expression, they're quite transparent, maybe. Uh, They're quite quite clear uh, about the racial privilege they... Uh, God, uh, only because they were the Europeans who were living in this, uh, which became the, the metropolis of Patagonia, Punta Arenas. They were living there in the 1870s when a governor went to uh, to get some sheep in, in Malvinas, in the Falklands. And the, because they were Europeans, the um, the Chilean authority told them to get uh, as much land as they wanted, you know, and they were very few in the town, uh, but but they built this network of uh, European-like uh, people who were very poor. The the Chilean governor still and and these uh, small merchants. Um, and the governor asked them the, to get as many land, as good, the better land, across the strait, on the coast of the strait, uh, to bring ship from the Malvinas. And basically the state provided the, uh, the boat to get the ship, uh, gave them the, the land, and at the same time they didn't give anything to the poor immigrants that were coming from Chile as soldiers or uh, small colonists, you know, poor colonists, from Valparaíso and Chiloé mainly. So that defined for the, up to these days, you know, a profile in which the weak state authority uh, decided that the better people to give the land, uh, to receive the land, were these merchants, small merchants from Europe, um, mainly Nogueira and, and the Brown family, uh, and many others. You know, the, the book is full of, of names in that, in that area because the, the information is quite detailed. And they are also very clear that this connection with local, poor, very poor local authorities, precarious authorities, uh, gave them the opportunity uh, 
in the following, in the next years, to establish some contact with the military, with the, uh, with the army, uh, and throughout them to uh, get some exploration of the land. Uh, and thereafter to, uh, to get some contacts in Santiago and in Valparaíso uh, and to pay the national politicians uh, or to exchange favors with them um, for not paying for the land they had, they got for free, you know. Uh, and the, the whole state apparatus by Chile, the Chilean and, and the Argentinian also, began to work in terms of providing them uh, with the best conditions uh, available uh, to develop uh, the building of a monopoly uh, in terms of ship farming, commercialization, the port, communications with Santiago, with Paraíso, with Buenos Aires. So very rapidly, the intrication, the intricate networks of British capital plus these uh, local merchants uh, becoming brokers with the Chilean poorest authorities in the area. And thereafter, with the national oligarchies, uh, produce a kind of reproduction of the oligarchic state in both Argentina and Chile. And locally, as a marginal area, um, it was a very rapid expansion. And this expansion caused the, I mean, a policy of genocide against the indigenous peoples once the number of ships on the continent was so big that they had to expand to this big island southward, uh, inhabited by a number of peoples uh, that had remained up to the late 1880s uh, independent peoples without any permanent contact, but with I mean, uh, sporadic context. Uh, so that was the moment in, in which. And that's the main uh, land grant um, I have found up to these days in, uh, in Latin American history. You know? um, it's the initial one was uh, 1.5 million hectares. Um, but in the next year, it was uh, uh, it reached, I, I think, something like four million hectares. Uh, the basis of the Sociedad Explotadora de Tierra del Fuego, um, and both on the Chilean, uh, because of grants by Chilean authorities, and because of grants by Argentina authorities. So Argentina and Chile were almost at war in their dispute for this stolen land um, a number of times. Uh, but locally, uh, they basically granted the land to British capitals uh, and didn't have any presence in the area for, for many years, for many years. <laughs> I, I had no idea that that was the largest kind of land giveaway in Latin American history. Um, yeah, I, I haven't found any other biggest. Uh, <laughs> if somebody knows something, please let me know. Uh, I think La Forestal, probably, uh, in, in northern Argentina. Um, uh, 
And there's another one in Yucatan, which uh, I know is, is quite big. But, I mean, the Sociedad Explotadora de Tierra del Fuego got, finally, in the 1910s, something like more than 3 million hectares. And they had this, uh, how do you say, sister company, which is the Sociedad Anónima Importadora and Exportadora de la Patagonia, which worked basically on Argentinian uh, ports. Uh, and they had a number, a similar number, you know, and they were basically two families, two families. Wow. Uh <laughs> one, so family. Just... One, one family, one family, one I family. Mean. Yeah. yeah. The, um, what's, so you've kind of developed how, how sheep and foreign capital came to really dominate this region in many ways at the expense of, of Chile and Argentina's sovereignty, but also their kind of, uh, their, the kind of the wealth, national wealth. Um, hmm. In the final chapter, you really get at some of the violence and the kind of heated conflicts in this process, first over, particularly in Tierra del Fuego, the ethnic cleansing and genocide, but we also see um, class struggle uh, and some kind of, not just kind of your standard class struggle, workers and the bosses or landowners, but also some kind of really complicated conflicts over customs. So the way that the state might gain a little bit of of wealth and revenue from from this, um, so maybe you can yeah. talk just you know broadly opening up what how kind of violence and conflict played out in particularly the early twentieth century. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it, it's amazing. Yeah, uh, I'm now I'm currently writing something I I shouldn't be writing. Uh, I, I mean, I'm now in a project uh, working on on a comparative. Uh, approach of uh, colonization companies in the Amazon, Chaco, and, and Tierra del Fuego. But now I diverted to back to to, to Patagonia, uh, and and I was seeing new names I, I didn't have when when I wrote the book. That I mean the the Sociedad Explotadora de Tierra del Fuego was so fast in its expansion, and the other uh, ship farming company. Uh, that they reached, that they conquered, you will say, Santiago and Buenos Aires very rapidly uh, and established networks of uh, corruption. Uh, but they built also families. I mean, each one of these families uh, got uh, their sons and daughters um, married to people from the oligarchy in Santiago and Valparaíso. I mean, these people who had arrived with basically nothing to this out-of-the-world place in the 1860s, in the 1880s, uh, as they were brokers, they made fortunes. Uh, and they began to marry their kids, uh, their children, uh, to people in Santiago and Buenos Aires. So, uh, when the state, both in Argentina and in Chile, uh, began to discuss the possibility of establishing custom houses in this area, which was quite liberal, um, to establish some custom houses, they sent these visitors from, from the north, uh, and the 
the information, the, the official documentation they reported back, was that there was no reason to establish custom houses there, that it would be an impediment to progress and the development of, of the industry. And you know, in, in these days, a couple of days ago, I discovered one of these guys was part of the, the, the Chilean custom, the uh, main custom officer was, was actually married and part of this Sociedad Explotadora de Tierra del Fuego. And in the case of Argentina, something quite similar. Um, so all these strategies of nationalization by Argentina and Chile failed in front of the wide networks with politicians uh, and officials and officers in, in both countries. Um, and on the, on the other hand, they had wiped out the indigenous peoples. Uh, in the case of Tierra del Fuego, that's a private genocide. I do not talk much about that in the, in, in the book as I concentrated in more inner state capital formation. But more recently, I work on that. Uh, and contrary to, to some versions, uh, that was a private genocide. Um, there's a new book coming out in these days in, in South Africa, University of Cape Town, Chris, uh, about private genocides. And, and there's also this case of, the, of Tierra del Fuego, in which British entrepreneurs uh, hired healers uh, to, I mean, to eliminate the whole population that was a menace to, to the expansion of sheep farming. But in the continent, it was, it was quite different. Anyway, in, by 1900, you had this big empire of ship farming connected straight to uh, Liverpool. But uh, they required very few workers, uh, I mean, basically to let the ship grow after they eliminated the, the Stepland population. And so they began to expand in the area in the late 19, in the very few years, late, in the late few years of the 19th century, they began to build these very big uh, freezing plants. So up to then, they were basically exporting uh, wool. But after the freezing plants, they began to explode also uh, the meat. So they are required to hire hundreds of workers, unskilled workers, most of them, um, without any right. You know, people coming, migrants to this with to this area with very low population, and where these big landowners uh, were in charge of everything, public and private affairs. Um, so by 1910, you had a kind of explosion of labor demands and the formation of a very active uh, working class, multinational, multi-ethnic, um, with a high mobility between Chilean and Argentinian towns. Um, and they built this network. Uh, I mean, the first uh, newspaper they, they, they published in, in Pontarena, um, 
they uh, published the the demands of the of this Federación Obrera de Magallanes or FOM. Uh, they published in English, in Croatian, and in Castilian. You know, um, so they were really getting into these multinational recent migrants. Uh, very few of them had been born in Patagonia. They were mostly coming from outside, uh, from very far, far away. I mean, the, these companies owned by British capitals were bringing managers, uh, shepherds from New Zealand, from Scotland, from Australia, uh, South Africa. And the unskilled workers were being brought were being brought from Chiloé, Buenos Aires, uh, I mean, southern Chile. And this labor movement was very active in the 1910s. So it, it's kind of the replacement of, uh, you had this very rapid capitalism, state capitalism, being formed in between the late 1870s and the early 20th century. And very rapidly, you had also there, um, the replacement, the elimination of the indigenous question and the sudden appearance of the social question um, with a very active and militant uh, labor movement. And this labor movement, and, and I think that's the closing of the of the book, uh, this labor movement was severely repressed between 1919 and 1922. It was destroyed. We have probably thousands of workers that were killed by both, the, mainly the Argentinian army, but also the Chilean army. And that's a big shift. Uh, in comparison with the conquest of Tierra del Fuego. Uh, the second conquest uh, wasn't private, uh, but was mainly uh, led by the state in support of the uh, landowners. You know, It wasn't the other way uh, as it was in Tierra del Fuego. I mean, in Tierra del Fuego, they were the privates, the the landowners who killed, captured, and deported the indigenous peoples. Uh, and that allowed the state thereafter to establish on Terra del Fuego. But in the continent, it was in the 19, late 1910s, early 1920s, that the state undertook the task to eliminate the red menace, you know, um, this maximalist that were spreading an um, internationalist language. Um, and that's the moment also, immediately after that uh, heavy repression, that both the Chilean and the Argentinian state began to build their, um, how do you say, uh, their border controls, you know. Uh, it was the first time for Two countries that were at the bridge of war a number of times in their dispute for Patagonia. It was the first time that, uh, 
that Chilean and Argentinian troops met at this ill-defined, well-defined in diplomatic terms, but undefined on the ground border. And it was in the prosecution of the uh, strikers, of the labor organizers. It wasn't because they were disputing the land or because the landowners owned land throughout this area, but it was uh, as they were hunting the labor organizers that the Chilean and Argentinian armies met face to face and they were collaborating one with the other. Wow, that's really fascinating. <laughs> um, so I guess for my, I, one of my, my last questions about the book is to really kind of take a step back a little to a little bit more of a theoretical uh, level. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more um, why throughout the book you opt for the term post-colonial colonialism as opposed to um, settler colonialism. Mm. Um, and I'm just cur- I'm mm. curious. I noticed that you have a, mm. a forthcoming article on that, um, and mm. I was wondering if you could discuss that. Uh, you're well informed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They sent me the, the, the copies. No, actually, in, in this article, I got, I got the, the final version a couple of days ago. Uh, actually, I, I reject of the of the denomination postcolonial colonialism, I, I I think that I was too centered uh, in studying state formation, um, and I discovered that it was hand on hand uh, with the formation of capital um, that I became too concentrated. I, I mean, you can cannot do everything in in everywhere, <laughs> but um, I think. From the perspective of the state, um, I think the the concept uh, was right, post-colonial colonialism. Uh, but if you really uh, work uh, on the idea of sovereignty, that's also throughout the book, um, you should have, I should have, uh, recognize that um, that's not a post-colonial setting, but that's a colonial setting. Uh, it's post-colonial only in the perspective of, of the Argentinian and Chilean state that are post-colonial states. Um, but this area, so different, without any significant European or European-American presence uh, before the 1870s, uh, I should have uh, rather used um, really acknowledging uh, indigenous and social sovereignties um, that that's a totally colonial setting, you know, settler colonialism. I do use also, um, not much, but some reflection on, on, on settler colonialism, uh, and I think that would be uh, better to understand uh, this area. Uh, I think that's a kind of uh, state-centered uh, deformation that I had at the moment I was working on, on this book. Yeah. I, you know, not to, not, not to kind of go too hard on it, but I did appreciate um, how in using the term you think about it's pushing against the state's imagined ownership or domination yeah, over lands yeah, that it yeah. doesn't possess. 
Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> no, 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 yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that's also important in the book, the, the idea that uh, both the states uh, up to these days uh, did keep um, an idea that this land belonged to them, you know? Um, I mean, we are about to celebrate, to commemorate the 500 years of the discovery, you know, uh, quote-unquote, of the Strait of Magellan. Um, the most nationalistic approaches are now staging with very wide state support. Not now because of the emergency, you know, but uh, up to four months ago, there were a number of uh, activities for the 500 years of the of the discovery of the strait. And the statement was that Chile and Argentina were actually discovered, you know, in 1520 by the expedition of Magellan. Uh, and as you said, you know, uh, that's kind of the naturalization of the ownership by the states that were not even uh, existent by then, you know. Countries are not discovered, you know. They are produced, they are built, invented. Um, and so in that sense, thank you, yeah. Um, in that perspective, uh, it tried to, the concept tried to highlight uh, the idea that uh, this was a colonial uh, expansion by post-colonial states, yeah. Well... Alberto, uh, we've taken a lot of time. Um, I ask everyone one last question. Um, you alluded a little bit to working on uh, colonization companies in a comparative sense, but I was wondering if you could comment on um, what you're working on these days, either a little more on that project or anything else uh, you have. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm trying to, to do some work in these days between dividing the time between the... Uh, um, home uh, issues uh, in this context of quarantine and Zoom, uh, distant classes with the students. Uh, this semester I, I do work with first-year students uh, uh, and we are getting in touch through this Zoom platform. Uh, so that's a lot of, of, of work trying to introduce new students to the study of history uh, in this context. But beyond, uh, I'm working in this uh, project uh, of comparing um, colonial settings uh, in which state and capital uh, came together uh, to produce a rapid in integration into the world market of peoples that had remained uh, out of the reach of both state and capital up to the late 19th century. Um, and in that sense, we hold, uh, that was, I think, the last activity uh, held at the university here in Valdivia. We hold an international conference with people uh, from many parts of Latin America uh, to discuss this um, uh, age of empire uh, Latin American colonial processes. Um, and we are working on that uh, in, in writing a collective book. Uh, not, not a collective book, but 
an edited volume uh, that we hope uh, will come out in in next year, early on next year. We'll see. We go through this devastation in this area. Um, and for me, it's quite important that, uh, to keep in, in touch with the with these um, colonial settings uh, that I see uh, still in these days uh, I quite are quite compelling. Um, the current situation of genocide in the Amazon uh, refers with many similarities uh, to the rubber boom in the late uh, 19th century and early 20th century. The same that as ship sovereignties were a shifting, a driving force of colonization uh, in late 19th century for the Kano peoples uh, in these days in Western Patagonia, uh, the expansion of the salmon industry uh, is equally devastating uh, in many senses. So I think I'll be trying to figure out long continuities of racial, colonial, uh, ethnic uh, profiling in these border areas. I mean, for me, it's been, I never considered myself a racist, you know. Uh, but going now back through this book, which was written an, a number of years ago, um, now that I've been far more in contact with indigenous people in Patagonia, um, I do realize the, the, I mean, the, the racial implication of many of the assumptions uh, that you can take for granted, uh, you know, or I can take for granted, and I did uh, in this book. I mean, as the this consideration that we were talking about uh, between settler colonialism uh, and post-colonial colonialism, I, I, I think that the this situation of uh, renewed colonial processes in the Amazon, in Patagonia, in Chaco, uh, allows you to, to go again, back to, to review your own concepts and category, categories and ways of conceiving the difference. That's, that's really wonderful. Um, and it, sound, you know, it sounds like a really excellent I think, process to be engaged in um, in that reflection, uh, as well as the, the volume that you're working on in the conference that um, you had in Valdivia. Um, I look forward to hearing more about that. So I want to uh, thank you for uh, being on the show. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation, um, and take care. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for your questions, for your tolerance to the... <laughs> the princess uh, uh, keep safe you, you as you, well uh, okay. yeah thank you bye bye